0: Uh, For those of you um, who are new here or visiting us, great to have you with us. Uh, My name's Ed, and I lead the church with my wife, Hannah. And we are continuing a series um, on the I Am sayings of Jesus in uh, the Gospel of John. Today, we're kind of coming to the end. I'm looking at the penultimate one. Uh, So, I Am the Way, the Truth, and the Life. As um, has been previously explained, there are seven of these in John's Gospel, and that's not a mistake, and there are seven accompanying uh, signs or wonders, which is also not a mistake. Seven is, in Jewish thinking, the number of perfection, and John is making a point that these are ramming home Jesus' identity as the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah, and the Saviour of the world. So, for example, who is it in Jewish thinking who uh, miraculously feeds his people um, out of nothing? It is God, and yet Jesus does this, feeding the 5,000, and then he says, I am the... um, uh, uh, uncommunicated name of God, I am the bread of life to everyone, to ram the point home. And then he also heals the sick and the lame walk and he walks on water. And as Hannah explained last week, his final sign in John's gospel is the most emphatic, the most um, shoving it in your face, he raises Lazarus from the dead and then says, I am the resurrection and the life. I know we're sort of so familiar with these stories that they become a little bit like, "Eh, whatever. But if you can imagine for a second, Jesus standing there outside a tomb, of his friend who everyone knew, who everyone knew had died three days earlier, who is a stinking, rotting corpse, and saying, Lazarus, come out, and then he comes out and then says, I am the resurrection and the life, and I think everyone else would be going, yeah, you are. Yeah, you really are. Quite a thing. However, that is the last sign that he does in John's Gospel, and with it, the focus of the whole narrative changes. Up until this point, it has been about Jesus' public ministry. So he is going out to the people of Israel, saying, here are my signs, here are my proclamations that I am the real thing. Are you going to follow me? And many do. However, as many do, more and more actually uh, join the opposition towards him. And throughout the narrative, there is this growing threat which comes to a head after the resurrection uh, claim of basically we've got to get rid of this blasphemer. We have to put him to death. So the focus shifts. And with the last two sayings, this one and next week, we are not so much in the public ministry of Jesus proclaiming himself to the world as him with his inner circle, Whilst the looming threat is there on the outside, but with his closest disciples, the ones who've kind of got it, sort of, pretty much got it. But he is now proclaiming himself to them to reassure them. I am who you think I am, and I'm never, ever going to leave you. And so that's what I want to talk about uh, this morning, that God is never, ever going to leave you. He is on your side. He is not trying to make your life a misery. He isn't actively working against your plans. He isn't trying to teach you lessons through causing suffering to to you and people that you love. He isn't a bully. He isn't a taskmaster. He is not a disappointed parent. God is on your side. And he is with you. So let me read this. John chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. It's there. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, doubting Thomas, Lord, we do not know where you are going. So how can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been with you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? It doesn't say that. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you, and he will be with you. I will not I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So, first of all, the disciples' hearts are troubled, and for a couple of obvious reasons. Firstly, they have sensed this opposition to Jesus beginning to outweigh the support for him. And despite the depiction of them being a bit slow and a bit stupid and not quite getting it as they have been depicted throughout the gospel, they do actually kind of begin to put two and two together and they are sensing where this is going and they are realizing that really the triumph of the Messiah might not be quite the triumph they were expecting and it's looking actually like Jesus is going to be arrested, it's looking like he is going to be killed and what then does that make of this whole last three years of their lives, this whole project that has been before them so their hearts are troubled and this trouble is um accentuated by what has just happened in the previous chapter so as very famous uh, jesus washes their feet uh, they have a last supper together and then he says one of you is going to deny me and then he says "Um, and peter you are sorry one of you is going to betray me and then peter you are going to deny me before this night is over So their hearts are troubled because they don't believe it, and death and betrayal and denial are all looming. Now, the word for troubled is very important. I know this doesn't sound interesting, but it is kind of. Uh, The word for trouble is very important because John is making a point here. It's been used three times previously, and in each occasion it has been used to actually not describe human hearts, well, One human heart in particular, Jesus' heart. His heart has been troubled three times. His heart has been troubled when he has contemplated the cross. His heart has been troubled when he has talked about Judas uh, betraying him. And his heart was troubled when he saw Lazarus dead. And at that occasion, it's not just troubled. He's angry and he's um, furious and he is bellowing out this, no, this doesn't happen. And the point John is making in saying that the disciples' hearts are troubled is that, as exampled by Jesus, there are times when our hearts really should be troubled. They are being confronted by the most stark reminder that the world does not operate as it should. They are being confronted by the fact that Jesus is going to die. And they are being confronted by their own uh, lack of faith, their own ability to do anything. They are being confronted by uh, the fact that one of them is going to betray him and Peter is going to deny him. So they are troubled and they are right to be troubled. Because we should be troubled when things do not work as they are supposed to. So what is troubling your heart at the moment? If I think about what is troubling mine, there are lots of things that are troubling mine. Like, what am I going to have for lunch? Uh, but really, more fundamental than that, the thing that is really troubling my, my heart at the moment is the fact that three of my friends, um, who are also actually colleagues and really run this whole thing called bread, they have a looming visa issue over them that has been going on for quite some time. That makes me troubled inside. And I have to say, I think I'm right to be troubled by that, and they are definitely right to be troubled by that, because that shouldn't happen. Not really. If you think about it, if you think about God's kingdom, which is what we're all created for, we should have no insecurity, no worry, no cause for concern about where we are going to live, how we are going to look after our families, how we are going to be able to work. That should not exist in the kingdom of God. So we are right when we see these things, causing these things to people to be troubled by them. Just as an aside, this is just an aside. Um, I'm not making a political point about borders and visas. Just so you know, that's a talk for another day. We'll probably do that, it'll probably be Hannah. Uh, But (laughs) we will do that talk at some point. But if you think about it, um, in God's kingdom, border control is Jesus at a little podium saying, would you like to come in? Please come in, please come in. I've prepared some some rooms for you. They are amazing rooms, freestanding baths and thick white towels. It's gonna be great. (laughs) I'm so old. That's my idea of a good hotel. (laughs) It used to be bars and DJs and things like that, and good nightlife now, freestanding bath, thick white towels, that's what I'm looking for. Anyway, that's the border control at the kingdom of God. Jesus saying, come in, I've made it all brilliant for you. Please come in. Anyway. My friend's uncertainty about their visa situations, I'm right to be troubled by it, you should be troubled by it, we should all be troubled by it, because it's not right. Just as Jesus is troubled by all instances of darkness and injustice and things not working as they're supposed to. So what is currently troubling your heart? It could well be exactly the right sort of thing that should be troubling your heart. And of course, it may not. Because whilst there is a godly way in which our hearts are troubled, there is also an indulgence of that trouble or a fixation on that trouble that stops us from actually seeing where God is in the whole thing. And this is actually what's gone on for the disciples. Jesus says, verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. Not because our hearts can't be troubled by things and shouldn't be troubled by things. But in this instance, they are troubled by something that is not going to happen. They are troubled by the idea that has got in their head that Jesus is abandoning them. And he says, I'm never, ever, ever going to do that. So do not let your hearts be troubled. And he gives three real um, instances or ways in which uh, he will never leave them. The first is um, a looking forward to the future of heaven. Verse 2, my father's house has many rooms with freestanding baths and with thick white towels. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me and that you also may be where I am. Now, I know for many people that life after death, has been something that their church experience has only ever really talked about. It's all about life after death, and and the inference being that life here on earth doesn't really matter. That's not a good idea. And then there are other people for whom life after death has never really been talked about, because the people talking about it aren't really sure that actually it might really exist, and they're not too sure about Jesus actually rising from the dead, and they're not too sure that we're actually going to heaven, so let's just concentrate on, on here and now. That's not good either. We need to actually, from time to time, remember and uh, concentrate on the fact that our time here on Earth is actually really fleeting in the light of eternity. And there will come a time, not when we're whisked away into the clouds to perennially and eternally play a harp, which sounds like the most boring version of eternity you could possibly get. But actually, that heaven will descend here and everything will be amazing. No more suffering. No more pain. Every single tear wiped from every eye. No more darkness, no more misery, no more deceit, no more slander, no more um, effort to make things like we want them to be. Just peace and justice reigning. No darkness whatsoever, just light for all eternity. Everything's going to be color- covered in gold. I don't even like the color gold, but I will like it then because it will be heaven. <laughs> it's going to be amazing. And of course, we're not just, though, waiting to be whisked away. It comes here now, in part. All instances of justice, goodness, life, mercy. This is a foretaste of the extraordinary experience that we're all going to have forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. ever. The gospel songs that were sung by those um, in slavery in this country... These aren't just nice songs to keep up their spirits. These are songs of deliverance. These are songs of belief and of faith and of sure hope. Not necessarily that they will be delivered here and now, but they will surely be delivered forever and to eternity. Where all suffering, all earthly hell will cease forever. But sadly, I think these songs have become so familiar to us that we've separated them from their actual context. I have to say this as an English person. This is um, a terrible thing. But in England, there is a game called rugby. You won't be familiar with it. It's sort of a better version of American football. Uh, But there's a game called rugby, And for some reason in England, the unofficial stroke official song of rugby has, in England, has become Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. Now, I need to explain this to you, that rugby is a game played and watched by overprivileged, white, posh men. They're the ones who watch it, and yet they have adopted this song, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, as their song there is nothing more culturally inappropriate than Rupert Forsyth-Smythe standing in his tweed suit at an English rugby game going, swing low, chariot of the living God, and sweep me up out of my terrible $500 halfway line seat so that all my suffering may end whilst I watch these other posh people sort of bang into each other down here on 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 the ground. The point I'm making is What is the point I'm making? (laughs) Heaven is prepared for all of us. And all suffering will end. All of it. Now I'm sure Rupert does have his suffering, if it weren't for the fact that I just made him up. But whatever you're going through, whatever you're going through, it will come to an end. So we look forward to heaven and Jesus also says, but look back to the cross and to the resurrection and do the same. Know that I am with you. I will never leave you. I am on your side. Verse 4, you know the way to the place that I'm going. The way is a reference to the cross. In order for Jesus to achieve heaven for us, he says to the disciples, you know what I've got to do. You know what I've got to do. But the cross in John's gospel is not some miserable moment of death and destruction. It is actually Jesus' glorification. It is him being lifted up. It is a time of vindication. It is a time of justice. It is a time of actual victory where Jesus tramples on everything that ruins our lives and defeats it once and for all. Because it's on the cross that he wins the final victory. And so, just so you know, in Christian belief, the idea that God is with us, that he will look after us, that he is uh, um, never going to leave us, and that he is on our side, this is not wishful thinking. This is not, I really hope that's true, and I hope I feel it. It is not that. It is based on a historical moment in time that you can look back on. And what Jesus is doing for us and for his first hearers, and for this Jehannine community that the gospel is written for, is saying, remember, you were there. You were there, I died, and now I'm alive, and you saw me. The truth is, no historian, Christian, atheist, Jewish, whatever, would have any doubt, if they were worth their salt at all, would have no doubt that Jesus of Nazareth was a real historical person and that Jesus of Nazareth died on a Roman cross. And the evidence for the resurrection is overwhelming. So what Jesus is saying is, this is not wish fulfillment. This is not hoping something to be true. You were there, and therefore, if I did that, if I went to hell and back, if I did leave you for three days only, surely, having come back, I am never, ever, ever going to leave you ever again. Why on earth would I do that? In the future, in the past, and right now, in the present. Verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I'll not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. This is where our faith stops being about a future hope of glory or just a future hope of glory. It stops being about a past, historical, doctrinal belief. Not just that, and it becomes a present reality for here and now for everyone. And the point is, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, He's not an experience. Have you had an experience of the Holy Spirit? Oh, how was your? My my experience was an eight out of ten. How was yours? Oh, nine out of ten. Oh, interesting, more dramatic. He is not an experience. He's a person. He is the spirit of the living God. He is Jesus. He is the Godhead. He is the third person of the Trinity. Which makes him not an optional extra. As I've said before, often people go, I like the Father, like the Son, Spirit, not too sure about that. You know, If he's your sort of thing, great, but I prefer you know, yoga. <laughs> he is not an optional extra. He is the person in whose dimension of life our spirituality is formed and grows and thrives. And he is with us right now. He is here beckoning you, calling you, And he is here, as Jesus describes him, as the one who speaks on our behalf, our advocate. He is like the lawyer in a courtroom going, here's my son, here's my daughter, and I will defend them, and I will look after them, and I will speak for them, and I am the one who created the whole universe, and I am on your side. And he is the one who makes us not orphans. Whatever your personal experience of parenthood, and I know Father's uh, Father's Day brings this up for people some people have great fathers some people don't some people have great mothers some people don't whatever your experience is the Spirit comes and says be part of the most extraordinary family The world has ever seen and have a perfect father have a perfect mother have a perfect parent he will wipe away the tears he will heal all the pain and he will bind you in so that you never need to worry ever again about this you are totally in so God is on your side A little disclaimer to end. This week, while I was writing this talk, and so it's going to be about God is on your side. I think that's what the passage says. I had a moment of going, do I really believe that? Do I actually believe that? Now, theologically, that's what the passage says. So intellectually, yeah, I believe it. It's what the Bible says. I've always believed that. That's definitely true. God is on our side. Believe that? Tick historically, I can look back to lots of moments in my life, in the lives of other people, where I go, yeah, he's definitely on our side. Look, he did that, he did that, he did that. Got no explanation other than it's God. So yes, I do believe it. But right now, this week, do I believe that God is on on my side? Or do I feel like he's pretty far off, actually? The answer to that question was, I'm not sure. That was at the beginning of the week. I thought, I'm in a pickle. I've got to do a talk about how God is on your side and I've got to not appear like a total fraud. I need to know that God is on my side. So I had a little chat with God. That makes me sound such a Christian. I didn't have a little chat with God. I prayed. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I prayed and I said, God, I've got to do this. I'm in this dilemma. You know, you know everything. I've got to do this talk about God being on my side, and I don't really feel like you're on my side right now. Please, would you show me that you're with me? And it was a bit risky, because I just didn't know. Anyway, this week, um, we're moving house, and uh, we, are, for various obvious reasons, want to be closer to the church. But it means, when you're moving house with three kids... It's a little bit more complicated than just, you know, finding a new roommate or whatever. Because you've got to have one, more than one bedroom. uh, And two, uh, we need to be in like a school where they will feel safe and comfortable and that sort of stuff. So um, we found two schools that we liked. And we showed the kids around them. And they said, we hate that one. We quite like that one. So then we had one school. Uh, that we, we were kind of focusing on. Then the other school also said, oh, by the way, we're completely full and we're not taking any new parents, even if you're in the right catchment area. And so we thought, well, that one's definitely dead. So we have one school. The problem is everyone wants to go to this school. And the house prices reflect that. There was one place in that whole catchment area that had um, more than two bedrooms. We've got three children, three bedrooms. Uh, and that was in our budget, $50 below our budget. Uh, But we spoke to them and said, well, someone else is looking around it and they're going to put in an offer. And we went, oh, we'll put in an offer. But we put in a low offer and he said, not good enough. And then he came up and then we got the offer and it it was $50. Anyway, we moved in. It was great. Um, but we didn't know whether we were going to get the kids in school. So we went on the last possible day that we could actually go to go, hey, we've got these three kids. There's three of them. Yeah, she, actually, <laughs> I, had, I brought a whole bunch of paper. You have to bring about this much paper. I put this paper down. He said, have you got like nine children? I said, we've only got three, but we're from England. We have more paper than you. Anyway, <laughs> I said, we've got, we've got to put these children in. And she said, well, okay, well, we'll do it. And you need these forms, you need these forms. Blah, blah, blah. Um, there and then, she said, okay, they're all in. All three of them, straight in. And what? I said, yeah, well, last year we turned people away, but we're just saying that you're in, totally in. And I felt like, I've prayed that God would be with me. That feels like God's with us. Our youngest daughter, she's preternaturally tall. I don't know where she gets it from. But uh, she's also very old for her year. And um, she's like a September birthday, but she's been sort of in the grade below. But also, she's very, very intelligent. Just, you know, hugely intelligent. More intelligent than any of your children or you, or anyone you've ever met. She's just a very, very intelligent girl. So she needs to be in the grade above. We spoke to the, the school that we were at, and we said, we want to put her up a grade, because we're pushy parents. Get over it. And uh, that was a joke. Uh, we're not pushy parents. We just want her to be happy, and in the grade above. Uh, so anyway. I said, um, we said, could we put her up a a grade? And the other school said, in absolutely no way. We sat in this room where these people just went, no, 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 no. I said, oh, please, no. Uh, Basically, computer says no. We went to this new school. During the thing, we said, oh, could we, you know, is there any way we could put her up? Ten minutes with the very nice principal and the woman who looks after development, I don't know. Uh, And they go, yeah, of course, she's definitely ready for it, put her straight up. So she's now in the year with the only other person that she knows who goes to this school, who also goes to this church, who is her friend. And that felt like, oh, God, you are with me. And then on Thursday, Hannah called me. Hannah is flying with our three children, not with me, for various normal reasons. Uh, But she's flying with three children to the UK. Uh, That's not an easy trip. The flights were stupidly expensive, so um, she's flying via Charlotte, whatever, but she gets a call from American Airlines to say, um, oh, hello, Mrs. Flint. I'm very sorry, but um, we've cancelled that co- flight. Actually, I don't think she even got a call. She just got an email. We've cancelled your flight to Charlotte. So then they got back and they said, okay, we're now flying you via New York, but you'll be leaving at midnight. Uh, with your three children to have a four-hour layover at whatever deathly time in the morning in New York, and then you'll make it to whatever. And so anyway, Hannah calls me, and she's not that happy. Uh, the thing is, though, I know that God's with me, because I prayed that. Uh, so I said, well, you can be unhappy, Hannah, but it's all going to be fine, because God is with us, because I prayed, and he's showing us, showing me that he's with us. And so I said, um, just call the airline, and they will You know, they'll sort everything out. It's all fine. I'm making this out. Hannah's just here going, (laughs) no, that's not how it happened. Just pretend that's how it happened. Uh, I said, call the airline. It'll be fine because God is with me. He's been answering my prayers. Uh, So she calls the airline. They said, oh, I'm very sorry, Mrs. Flint. Uh, We'll put you on a direct flight. Really nice um, airtime. Uh, just leaving straight from LAX, straight to London Heathrow. The cost of these flights are $3,000 each, but it'll just be covered by the original thing, which was like 500 bucks. So there we go. And I think, well, you know, obviously, because God is with me, and he answers my prayers. So that's disclaimer number one. And the only reason I know that God is with me is because I prayed, God, will you be with me? And he answered my prayers. But disclaimer number two is, yeah, but still... What solace is that necessarily to anyone whose prayers are not being answered? This is great. You know, other people's stories. whoopee doo And I've been wrestling with this. And what I realized in this passage is that what God, what Jesus is saying is not... I will take away all your suffering. What Jesus is not saying is, I am a genie in a bottle, and if you, um, you know, say the right things, everything will work out for you. He's not saying that. What he is saying is, I will always be with you, and I am on your side. If you consider, if you're anything like me, how we pray. I pray like this. God, I need this, I want this, I desire this, would you comfort me in this, would you please give me that, and would you do this for me? That's how I pray, and I'm a pastor, so, you know, what hope is there for you? (laughs) That's generally how I pray, and I do that for a bit, and then I go, oh, wait a second, maybe I could just remember the program. If you look at the prayers of the Bible, the true people who really knew God, do you know how they, in general, tend to pray? It's not like that at all. It is like this. God, I want to be with you. I want to be in your presence. I want you close to me. Would you come to me? Paul, at the beginning of Ephesians, I keep asking that God... Our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. The psalmist, my soul yearns and even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. The prayers of the Bible pray for closer connection. And this is what Jesus is saying. He is not a doctrine to believe. He is not a moral code to keep. He is not an experience to have. He is not a therapy to subscribe to. He is not a diet to stick to. He is a person to be met. Jesus is saying, I am the way. He is not saying, I will show you the way. Although, ironically, that's often what we want him to do. Will you please just show me what to do and I promise I'll do it. He says, I am the truth. He does not say, I will show you the truth. Although ironically, that's often what we want him to do. Will you please show me what I need to believe in order for everything to go right? And he says, I am the life. He does not say, "I will show you the life." Although, ironically, that's often what we want him to do. Please show me how to be, so that everything will be good with my life. He says, "I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life." Because he is personal, and he wants us. He wants us to give our, our he wants us to give our hearts to him, so that he can be with us. He's very confrontational like that. And if you think about it, the reason we want him to show us the way or show us the truth or show us the life is because we want to stay in control. And if we know what we're supposed to do, then we can control our behavior and we can control everything. And if we do this, will that mean our lives go well? And Jesus goes, I'm not going to show you the way. I am it. Come to me. There's a C.S. Lewis quote. This is the end. If you don't want your heart to be broken, give it to nobody. And the thing is, again, I don't want to go harp on about this, but um, on days like Father's Day, if we've had a bad experience of a father, we gave our hearts to him whether we thought it was a good idea or not because we were little children. And some people have had their hearts broken by their parents. If you don't want your heart to be broken, give it to nobody. However, if you give it to nobody, it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. The irony being that the one person we find it so difficult to give our heart to is the one person who will never, ever, 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 ever ever break it. The one person who we can actually trust our heart to is the one person who we need to give our heart to, and yet we just want to keep him at arm's distance. So what I suggest we do is to tell him our troubles, give them to him, and you may feel his frustration, his anger, his fury at those troubles too, because he wants you to know that he is with you in those troubles, and he does not like them either. So give him your troubles, but also give him your heart. Go to him as a person. Say, here I am. Show me that you're on my side. Show me that you're with me. Show me that you're never going to leave me. And just see what he might do. Good idea? Good. Let's sing a song and we can do that together.